Welcome to the Lorax. This is the podcast where we take everyone's favourite sci-fi, fantasy and fictional settings and look at them a little bit too deeply through sociological, historical and philosophical lenses. Uh, It's Alex. And I'm Khalil. And this week we're talking about a recently-ish released piece of sci-fi media on Netflix, Cyberpunk Edge Runners. Nearly said Cyberpunk 2077. That would be the video game. <laughs> uh, Cyberpunk Edge Runners released. We are professionals. Yes, professionals. I'm not reading this from a phone. Uh, was released in 2022, which makes it last year, as the point of, at the point of recording. Anyway, it's a 10 episode story about a. A street kid trying to survive in a techno-dystopian future and a city obsessed with body modification uh, and uh, beset on all sides by gang violence and corporate greed. The show was written by Raphael Yaki and Mike Pondsmith, uh, Pondsmith being the original creator of the cyberpunk world that Edge Runners and the video game 2077 is based on. As well as the tabletop role-playing game. Yes, one on the among the list of tabletop role-playing games I would like to, but probably will never get to play. Someone uh, run a game for us. <laughs> please, get in touch. Um, the show was animated by the Japanese house studio Trigger under the supervision of the Polish company CG Project Red, who were the company behind the Cyberpunk 2077 video game. Uh, the director of the show was a guy called Hiroyuki Imaishi, who directed both Gurren Langen, uh, Lagen and Kill the Kill, a uh, Japanese anime that feature a lot of flashy visuals, uh, and Gurren Langen in particular, big mecha future dystopia stuff. Um, very shonen, very flashy. Uh, and there's a ton of stuff in the cyberpunk world that you can see has that sort of kill the kill bent to it. Um, the show itself is extremely colourful and uh, garish. Yeah, both of them have been on my two watch list ever since I saw uh, the Drawfy YouTube channel of artists kind of parodying bits of it. It just yeah. looks so extremely, yeah, extremely <laughs> over the top. Um, one thing I will say before we dive into Edge Runners is that there is a ton. Uh, to do with cyberpunk, the tabletop role-playing game, and cyberpunk, the genre, which we won't be covering in this episode because we don't have five or six hours in which to do so. Uh, So we're just going to be running down the show itself. We'll likely do a proper episode on cyberpunk, the tabletop role-playing game, and maybe an episode on cyberpunk, the genre, in the future as well. So, a quick rundown of the plot. Um, as always, trying not to spoil it too much, but give you enough meat so that you can get what we're talking about. Edge Runners is set in Night City, a self-reliant, independent metropolis located within the free state of California. There's massively extensive corruption at every level of government and society. Uh, cybernetic uh, body modification is everywhere and in some people it is an enhancement to their daily life but for many it becomes an addiction and people's relationship with that is a big theme there's also a constant background of gang violence and that's sometimes you know gangs of people fighting to survive uh, and make it on the mean streets and sometimes it's gangs fighting for supremacy and sometimes the real gangs are the corporations that's not relatable So, Arasaka and Militech are the two primary corporations active in the Edge Runners series, and they are at each other's throats. The the anime's storyline is primarily set in the neighbourhood of Santo Domingo, 
which is one of the oldest, poorest, and most industrial bits of Night City. And just like with uh, some of the main characters, um, it references uh, real-world places. For example, Santo Domingo is the capital of the Dominican Republic, which is the other half of that island Haiti is on. And so that has seen a lot of corporate and colonial exploitation and uh, you know, violence as a result of that over the years, decades, and centuries. So, let's meet our main character. An impulsive but incredibly gifted and talented streetwise little kid called David Martinez. And he lives in a mega block in Night City. And in the daytime, he goes to a prestigious Arasaka connected academy, funded by his mum's work as an emergency worker and a little bit of smuggling on the side. Mm. After losing everything he has in a pretty traumatic incident at one point, he makes the choice to cross that line into the the, kind of the the underside, the dark side of life in Night City and survive on the wrong side of the law as an edge runner, which is a high-tech black market mercenary. He manages to appropriate a piece of really cutting-edge uh, military technology, a spinal implant known as the Sandivistan, which allows him to move so fast that he, basically time slows down around him. He, through his journey in the underworld, he meets a cast of supporting characters, including Lucina, Lucy Kushinada, who is a kind of the epitome of that Japanese uh, pastel goth kind of girlfriend figure who is a bit emotionally distant and dreams of traveling to the moon. Rebecca, one of the fan favorite edge runners, who is a small woman with a fiery temper and just loves shotguns. Don't we all? Maine, a grizzled veteran who runs his own crew and takes David under his wing as a kind of surrogate father figure. And other members of the crew like Dorio, Pilar, Kiwi and Falco. We're all with their own personalities and cybernetic um, mm -hmm. kind of augmentations and quirks and roles within the crew. David in particular, uh, it becomes apparent that he has a real resilience and resistance to what's called cyberpsychosis, which is a degenerative brain condition that can be brought on by overloading your nervous system with too much cybernetic augmentation. But it doesn't super seem to affect David a huge amount, even with the Sandivistan, uh, this you know cutting-edge technology putting a huge load on his system. But cyberpsychosis is something that can really take over people and you see it a few times in the in the series and it's always looming in the background but we'll get to that later eventually david manages to rise through the criminal underworld of night city but by the end of the show is very much a changed man both physically and emotionally and spiritually he becomes obsessed with power and prestige and acquiring both just for the sake of having them Eventually, he's brought down by the Arasaka Corporation and its unbelievably superhumanly augmented cyber, cyborg hitman, 
Adam Smasher. Cyber Beast. <laughs> Which has got to be one of the... Adam Smasher is a great name. Right. It's 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 that... Because uh, Cyberpunk was made in like the 90s, right? By Mike Ponce. But the same time as like, you know, Dread and Warhammer and stuff. It's that corny, but also still cool name. Yeah. You know, like you, you, you'd expect to see him in like a Stallone or a Schwarzenegger movie. I was thinking know. more like, um, he's kind of like the cyborg version of like a uh, WWE pro wrestler. Yeah, yeah, it's exactly. like, Adam Smasher! Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> also, I do always love sci-fi either protagonist or antagonist with just normal ass names Adam like yeah like do you, like the main character like the guy in Dune is called Paul it's like yeah, it's just yeah like... and the main character in Edge Runners is David yeah <laughs> so that's a bit of a rundown of the plot well enough to hang these themes on yeah so what is Edge Runners talking about what's it saying yeah, I mean, I think um, as as with all our sh- all our episodes, we encourage you to watch the show for yourself. It's ten episodes. Uh, it's it's really well written. I mean, from a from just a critical before we get into the the, the analysis bit, I thoroughly enjoyed watching it. Um, it it flies by. It really exceeded my expectations because, mm. let's be honest, we've all seen uh, our fair share of video game adaptations for the screen yeah. and. They're a mixed bag, let's be honest. Yeah, yeah, and also it doesn't help that the game itself came out with, <laughs> and was a mixed bag. Uh, yeah. So I was like, I, I was a bit, I was also a, a bit sceptical going in, but I did very much enjoy it. Um, well, it's kind of like the game without the bugs. Yeah, yeah, true. And it is it is a self-contained story because they only have 10 episodes and the, the, it is set a year before the game starts and a hell of a lot happens in the game. So they need to square that away, whatever's happening with David, before they get to 2077. So. And I really appreciate a self-contained story that isn't, isn't always leaving itself open to a sequel mm. um, because sometimes you just got to make a piece of art and let it be good. Yeah, yeah. I think the creators have said that they were, they're looking at making... A, uh, another show or another series set in the cyberpunk world, but they've said that the ch- that's closed. The story's closed. Obviously, they do. I mean, they they do a pretty good job of closing most. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, if you watch the show, you'll uh, you know what we mean. <laughs> yeah, but I, I want to start talking about the uh, the analysis because this is one of those shows, those Netflix shows that is a, a strange sort of hybrid of Western and, and Eastern animation, mm-hmm. uh, drawn like an anime, directed by um, Eastern animators and directors. Um, so it fits in aspects of both cultures in a way, which, you know, maybe there's a, a little bit of a, a theme with the two massive corporations being Western and Eastern. Whoa, how about that? And also, you know, the, the, the world of cyberpunk and a lot of cyberpunk worlds in the genre more mm. broadly do have that kind of, you know, uh, Japan, Europe, America kind of Melting the cultural stuff, yeah. fusion. Yeah. So I want to talk about David as something called an isekai. So an isekai is a Japanese trope in anime and manga, which uh, involves a protagonist being whisked away from a sort of mundane life into a new world. It doesn't have to be like changing dimensions or planets or crossing between realms, but a new uh, arena of experiences. And most of the time, these characters are... Uh, what's known as a Mary Sue or a Marty Sue. If you're someone who hangs out on TV tropes like I do, you'd know that is someone who basically can't do any wrong and is, in some cases, an author stand-in, um, is, overcomes most ob- obstacles in their way fairly easily. Obviously, if you wrote a character who just walked through everything, it would make an interesting story, but enough that there's some peril which then they can then step over like an obnoxiously large puddle, basically. 
So an isekai basically overcomes most of the barriers they they encounter with no real hard work, and often the characters around them are drawn to them and see this person as special or you know the one or the chosen one or things like that. Yeah, there's often a combination of um, kind of special charisma and also special ability. Mm. So they have a a distinctive talent or set of talents, and or they have like a, a certain character trait that makes them particularly kind of magnetic. Yeah, and these characters become very popular because, um, as for the reasons you can imagine, they can sometimes be drawn as quite bland, grey characters because then the audience fills it in. They step in themselves, an audience what fill in. I was an incredibly gifted coder and resistant to cyber psychosis and this kind of edgy handsome teen yeah exactly the <laughs> cool jacket who everyone uh, instantly likes and i mean respects. It, you can't have a cyberpunk setting without a cool jacket mm. that's the rules that's true it, yeah you, you will go quite far down the rankings if you wore, <laughs> you're just a guy in like a t-shirt and jeans um but the, i mean david has uh well Apart from one thing we'll bring up in a second, he has one major, major flaw, which is that uh, he can't drink caffeinated drinks. Oh, it's carbonated, isn't it? Oh, sorry, yes. Yeah, can't it's, drink it's not the caffeine, it's the bubbles. It's the bubbles. Bubbles that's really it, yeah. fuck this guy up. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's an odd choice. It's, it's like endearing, but also a, a unique choice for a character flaw. Yeah, but it, it feels like a little bit of a cop-out, because mm. it's it's... It's not a, like a weakness that is ever exploited by his enemies. It's not like, oh no, you have poisoned me with fizzy water. <laughs> Adam Smasher doesn't kill him by pouring two liters of coke down his throat, <laughs> and then a couple of Mentos yeah. <laughs> hold his mouth shut. Yeah, um, like it, it. You know, it. It seems like it's not. It, it doesn't feel like it's given any relevance mm. a little bit. I feel like it's used in a way of... It's like, oh, he's not Superman. Yeah, and it's only really shown, I think, in the first half of the series. And it, I think it's used as a way of sort of reminding the audience that David, at this part, because there is a time skip, mm-hmm. uh, is still like it's a, a teenager. He's yeah. <laughs> a little baby boy. <laughs> that changes. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, David takes on this, this role of someone who can do no wrong. He... Uh, is a, like we said, he's a talented um, edge runner. Would become a talented edge runner. He he creates brain dances, which are chips that people slot into the uh, the ports in their necks to create virtual reality experiences. He creates those. Uh, there's a point near the beginning where um, you know he he needs to get an upgrade to his software so that he can continue attending this school, and his mom can't afford it, so he kind of hacks a way around it, which is mostly successful. Mm. Um, so yeah, he's. He's already talented at the start. Yeah, he's bullied, but ends up uh, getting the best of his bullies. You know, he gets his job. He almost get- he gets a job almost immediately as an edge runner. Is successful and becomes a valued part of the crew very quickly. Um, he gets continual pats on the back. He gets the girl. Um, but that's where the kind of the isekai thing stops because there's a big theme in cyberpunk edge runners, which is hubris. Because all this goes swimmingly and fantastically well for David until it starts getting to his head. Yeah, and all along the way, um, as his kind of successes build that arrogance and hubris, as well as the pats on the back and the camaraderie and the success and, and the material wealth, he's also getting constant warnings. Mm. Um, a lot of them from his uh, Ripper Doc, who's like a that's a kind of a backstreet uh, kind of surgeon cyberneticist mm-hmm. type job um, 
and also from other members of his crew, warning him um, of you know the, the dangers of pushing the limits um, on his tolerance of of cyberpsychosis, because just because he hasn't found his limit yet doesn't mean there isn't one. Mm. But he definitely becomes uh, kind of trapped in that hubristic cycle of going from victory to victory and each one silencing the the warnings and the and the kind of caveats from yeah. him and his his comrades mm. and spurring him on to even greater self-modification and even greater feats of you know violence and and kind of mastery um and it really it ratchets up in one direction yeah, and I I do I uh, I applaud the show for this because I I worried watching it that David was going to have that sort of um, uh, if if you watched the the Viking show Ragnar Lodbrok or if you watched Peaky Blinders Tommy Shelby thing where oh he's always got a plan so no matter how badly things are looking for the main character they've always they're always three steps ahead or two steps ahead so every time oh no what's now they're surely they're finished but oh no they've thought about this and here's a montage of all the things they did to prepare mm-hmm. for this thing the kind of our ocean's 11 type thing yeah, yeah yeah um but yeah he becomes a victim of his own hubris and trying to become night city's most uh legendary edge runner and mercenary um, he kind of loses sight of why he got into it in the first place. He severs connections with most of his closest associates, including uh, his his partner at this point, Lucy, and then loses everything. Yeah, um, but he's not the only person who has kind of aspects of that hubristic arc and mm. that kind of exploration of that part of the character. Yeah. So we just talked about Lucy. Um, she. A big part of her characterization at the start is that she she really wants to visit the moon. She wants to go to the moon and just escape the hecticness of Night City and the edge running life and go to what she sees as this serene paradise um, far away from it all. Yeah, she is also, I, I guess you could say it in Isekai as well, because she was, uh, I guess created by Arasaka as this perfect hacker, right? Yeah, she's kind of, kind of like um if you imagine the kind of the the goo bathtubs from um Minority Report, yeah. but with uh children who are like cyber criminals in the employ of a corporation. Yeah. And she breaks out at some point um and she is also incredibly incredibly talented. Mm-hmm. Um and mostly goes from victory to victory yeah yeah uh so she she ends up being able to well she starts off with this individualistic character and then as she warms up she loses well it warms up to david and then that ends ends up being her undoing as well although she does get to go to the moon uh yeah but she realizes that the moon which she's been idolizing and romanticizing about this entire time is basically nothing more than a, a corporate holiday retreat where people go and drive around on, on moon buggies and, and hop around in the, the low gravity and they pay loads of money for it. And she realises that the one thing she actually wanted to do was go to the moon with David mm-hmm. by that yes. point. Yes, and, and that's what I find really interesting about her character and, and kind of the most compelling thing about her is that she starts off this very, yeah, lone wolf kind of individualistic character who you know is part of a crew but out of necessity and convenience mm-hmm. um as a, as opposed to some kind of familial belonging and then she 
she breaks down those barriers and she opens up and she becomes close with David and that uh, exposes her to danger and then at the end when she finally gets to go to the moon she's back at being lonely again but mm-hmm. with having had the knowledge of closeness yeah so it's it's more of a tragic uh, loneliness as opposed to a a kind of determined loneliness mm. yeah there was a uh, a point at the end where uh, and going to give everyone I'll give you maybe about a a 30 second spoiler alert so enough time to press skip on your, your your podcast app twice for this but here comes the spoiler I did think at the end it would have been more poignant if when I thought when she wandered off into the mar- mar- the, the lunar landscape that she was going to like pop her helmet off right at the end what and um, uh, wow, what's it called total recall it <laughs> well yeah but maybe just the last bit would be like the click of the helmet coming yeah. off basically um, but then that might just be me being horrible pessimistic and cynic about it and just thinking I want everyone to have a horrible time I think leaving it uh, leaving it open uh, not the not the helmet <laughs> but I think yeah. leaving uh, leaving yeah it's good for interpretation what happens right, yeah. open means that the, the the importance is the loneliness mm. what she does with it is up to the viewer yeah true so, another aspect of hubris in the show is Maine. Mm. So, Maine is this, like I said... Guile from Street Fighter looking... Yeah, Guile from Street Fighter, but with the arms of Jax from Mortal Kombat. <laughs> yes, yeah. Um, Great crossover. And he really relies on his big, clunkly... Clunkly? Yeah. He really relies on his big, clunky, uh, kind of cybernetic arms uh kind of old school tech that really give him a kind of alpha top dog machismo look cigar chewing kind of you know yeah kind of gravel voiced um and his whole identity and his the way that he maintains his presence and power and reputation is through being a tough man who does action Mm. and leads a crew and uh, never looks back and always has the answer of what we need to do. Just got things out of control. Yeah. Men don't need to go to therapy. <laughs> Maine doesn't need to inject himself with Men cyberpsychosis. Men will literally get <laughs> giant, giant cybernetic arms and go crazy <laughs> instead of go to therapy. <laughs> yeah. So Maine is, yeah, he's interesting because he's that, he's that um, sort of trope kind of like father figure to David. Mm-hmm. Um, but he is a guy who, like we said, he... He refute well. He he injects himself with this serum that st- that keeps cyberpsychosis at bay, but also hides that from the rest of his crew because he thinks that means that he looks weak. And it keeps it at bay only in the like it suppresses the symptoms of it mm. in the short term. It doesn't stop the progression of it. Yeah. And so he is kind of a glimpse into the future for David a lot of yeah. the time, which David refuses to see. Yeah, and I think it's interesting as well that um, Maine is a victim of his own hubris because he he takes David under his wing and it's not... At first, it's kind of exploitative, but then uh, he begins to really value and care for David um, and but doesn't realise or realises too late that he has engendered in David this idea that David has to implant himself with more and more tech to become this legend of Night City. Uh, and by the end, when he is a, becomes a victim of his hubris and dies in a firefight with the with the, uh, the essentially, essentially the Night City equivalent of the SWAT team, um, he's, his last words to David are to just like, to stop going overboard with the Chrome. But he's already, by that point, he's already set 
the, his protege down the same path as him. Yeah, and and you know, like a, like in a very kind of parallel way to David. Again, you know, a glimpse into the future for David. It's that same thing of constantly being warned by people around you who care about you mm. that you are harming yourself and that this is going to end poorly. Yeah. Um, but being too proud to like, even acknowledge it, let alone act on it. Mm. Um, so, yeah, in the end, he got crazy and he get killed. Yep. <laughs> oh, then we have Rebecca. Yes. Uh, the the cartoon within the within the anime. Yeah. Uh she's a she's a cool character. Um with some caveats. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this will depend because I I I uh I looked this up. This will depend on whether you watch the show in English or in Japanese. Mm. Uh because Rebecca is drawn and if you google her right now or if you're familiar with the show, she is drawn short, pigtails, pastel-colored uh skin, makeup and hair. She's very much body modded herself to look very doll like, and she is wearing a big puffy jacket and underwear. Yes, nothing, nothing much else under that. And the show does, I, I don't want to say go out of its way, but there are a lot of shots of like from below angles from below or from behind of Rebecca, um, which is all fine. Rebecca is an adult, mm-hmm. but but coded, but yeah, in some in you know, and this is. This is a. I'm not going to say it's a it's a universal staple, but it is a reasonably common trope in uh, manga and anime. Yeah, the uh, the the term which I don't really like saying, I'd hate saying it, but is is lolly, which is, which short, is for Lolita. short for Lolita. Um, after that book. Yeah, <laughs> and there's a, there's an even extra thing where in correspondence between CD Projekt Red and uh, Studio Trigger. CD Projekt Red did not want Rebecca in the anime. They said um, that Night City doesn't have characters like her. She's too um, too anime for, for this dystopian future, uh, essentially. And Studio Trigger replied quite tersely with... Uh, uh, and the person from CD Projekt Red said that they replied with a uh, sentiment along the lines of, the lolly must stay. Um, so from the the horse's mouth. Yeah, <laughs> we're not we're not reading between any lines here. No, we're just reading the lines. <laughs> yeah, and so the reason why I said it depends whether you watch this in English or Japanese is because in the Japanese she's voiced by um, the same kind of voice actress you get in a lot of Japanese anime for characters like her, the Sundere kind of "I'm so angry at you, but I fancy you" kind of um, short. Uh, character kind of like very high pitched very high energy yeah whereas in the english version her voice is i wouldn't say you are mate <laughs> yeah <laughs> she's a cockney no uh but her... she's voiced by uh she's always in, uh jason statham <laughs> <laughs> i mean that would be great to be fair Roy, uh, ray winston <laughs> <laughs> hello david you are sunshine <laughs> <laughs> oh, i've heard you're something of an edge runner um <laughs> That was from the boys, I think. Anyway, um, yeah, uh, but uh, yeah, it, her English voice actress is older and speaks with an, an in an adult voice, essentially. Which I think, when you have two sets of people who watched either either show, people like me who watch the, you watch the Japanese version as well. I watched the first episode in English and then I switched to Japanese because I realised there were options. Yeah, yeah, I kind of did the same thing because I'm a big weeb and I was like, oh, there's Japanese. Oh, I'm watching Japanese. Uh, but yes, so 
But anyway, so that's the questionable thing about Rebecca. But Rebecca is this hyper-violent, hyper-action-orientated, secretly has a crush on David because David's the perfect guy. Um, yeah, because David can't just have <laughs> one pastel goth Japanese uh, girlfriend figure yeah. who's also a badass. He has to have one who kind of actually becomes... He, he becomes close with, and another who's, you know, just... An, just Available affection. <laughs> <An> option. <laughs> uh, yeah, so she she has dual she dual wields two shotguns that are uh, pastel coloured as well. Uh, she is like we said hyper hyper violent, hyper impulsive, and uh, live by the dual wielded shotguns, die by the dual wielded shotguns. And as a character, coding aside, as a character, I really like her. Um, and I think it would. We'll get into a bit later about like how kind of graphic and bleak the world is that they make, mm. but I think without the uh, the kind of relief of Rebecca, um, it might have been a bit kind of monotonously grim. Yeah. As opposed to having these like spikes of high energy uh, kind of um, erraticness. Yeah. Uh, so sort of pseudo comic relief as well. Like. Yeah, exactly. Comic relief, but not in a kind of uh, at-her-expense way. Yeah. So, you know, she could have stayed. She didn't have to be a lolly. <laughs> but, um... <laughs> yeah, could have made her taller. I'm glad she was there. Given her a shirt. Yeah. Like, yeah. E- even even just some shorts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't want to be old man yells at Cloud. <laughs> just some just some jean shorts as far. Put some clothes on. <laughs> um... So that's a little rundown of some of the kind of most distinctive. Mm. Uh, I mean, we would. I mean, I, I don't know if you would agree that I think hubris is probably the main theme of the show. If, you, if from our perspective watching it, that that's like yeah, hubris and power as well, mm. um, and the corrupting nature of power, mm. and also the corrupting nature of a lack of power. Yeah. Um, in the words of Akala. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolute powerlessness does the same. Yeah, and so, and sorry, but like I was going to say, I think that that need for power um, also comes into the 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 hyper anarcho capitalism of the setting, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's about what happens when people who have no power reach for that power with the only way they know how in this society, which is through violence and all this kind of stuff. And yeah, yeah. you know, people start off you know fighting for the crumbs that fall from the table of these corporations again totally unrelatable <laughs> and that leads them to hurt each other hurt themselves and uh hurt everyone around them yeah and so it's it's kind of powerlessness and the drive for power and the danger of that road um as well as the the sense of powerlessness of living within uh Capitalism. <laughs> so let's talk about capitalism <laughs> and Night City because uh, I I love Night City as a setting. I think it's great. Um, you tend to get with a lot of I love sci-fi and I love cyberpunk sci-fi in particular. But there is a tendency if you think of your your Blade Runners, your Altered Carbons, to depict these sci-fi futuristic cities as grey. There is neon, but it's mostly grey. It's always raining. Everyone's depressed. You're, like, you're walking along this like these dark streets with all this towering skyscrapers. Night City is not that. It's, and even uh, despite being called Night City, it's sometimes daytime. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's in the middle of a, what is now the Californian desert. But yeah, it's it's bright, it's colourful, it's in your face. And also the, the, the show is the exact same it's it's very bright garish uh it doesn't stray into that sort of sin city-esque kind of like 
guy smoking a cigarette in a trench coat kind of stuff. Yeah, it's, it doesn't doesn't go into noir territory. Yeah, and I I think if we're if we're talking about a hyper capitalist kind of setting, that's the direction it would go. Really, it it wouldn't go in a kind of grim, dark, kind of grotty direction. Mm. What you're going to get is you know look at going on the tube now. You know all the videos. Uh, sorry. All the adverts are bigger and brighter and they're moving and they have sound and it's all about, you know, the attention economy is all around us. Yeah. You know, every square inch of available public space is screaming at us to participate in capitalism. And so if you just dial that up 50 years, then we get to Night City. Yeah. And I think the the extra thing here is something I like in the cyberpunk setting and in Edge Runners is that we've talked about it a lot, but the the cyber psychosis and body body augmentation because in a uh, like you said, we walk around the tube today. There's there's big signs telling you to buy certain things, buy insurance, use this bank, get the suntan lotion, buy these clothes. Um, but in settings like uh, Night City and in places like Deus Ex Machina, the video game series, capitalism is now improve your body. Yeah. Buy things to improve your body. Get a better arm. Get a better eye. Get a better uh, set of a CPU in your brain so you can you can watch more uh, detailed VR porn. Because if we're if we're talking about kind of um, you know good old old fashioned class theory and mm. stuff, um, there was always this thought that you know the one thing that the worker always had of their own was their body, mm. um, and that you know the the owners of capital could can control everything else they can control you know your living environment they can control your food they control you know the the media you consume but you've always got autonomy over your own body not anymore yeah and who uh it's the same in the deus ex world as well who sells you the body modifications the corporations who sells you the stuff that keeps you from get, having getting cyber psychosis corporations who sells you the software upgrades so they don't go out of date? Yeah. Who sells you the insurance so that when you're shot on the street and the ambulance actually comes and arrives on time, uh, or if, at all, or at all, in your case, uh, as David finds out to his detriment, um, ironically because spoiler again, skip forward fifteen seconds because his mum's an emergency worker and then she doesn't have the insurance for an emergency team to turn up when uh, she's attacked. The cruel irony. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah, and people are trapped in this cycle and they're kept. Um, docile by, te- by technology as well. There's this sort of Fahrenheit 451 thing to it where uh, David walks, a lot of the things of him walking to his academy depict him walking past people on the streets um, jacked into these, uh, I think explicitly in the show, everyone's watching porn basically. Everyone's got like um, fleshlights attached to themselves and they're all writhing around on the street watching brain dances, which are VR things you, as I said, VR things you insert into your brain uh, of like porn and things like that. Yeah, and, and you know, there are kind of other types of brain dance, like hyper violent ones yeah. or anything like that, but they're all larger than life experiences being sold to people who are denied actual real joy. Yeah, it's like and, uh, scrolling on Instagram. Almost. And and also, you know, there have been, for example, studies in rats looking at uh, addiction and how your environment relates to addic- addictive behaviour. Um, and so, for example, in one experiment, um, there were, you know, there's one group of rats who were put in isolated 
um, cages with very little um, or no kind of enrichment, so mm -hmm. nothing to play with, just a kind of plain stark cage. Um, and another group of rats were put in a more communal cage with company and lots of places to hide and play and, and lots of stimulation and, and balanced food. And both groups of rats were given a cocaine button, which sounds fun. <laughs> um, and essentially, they could press this button and be given a little reward of cocaine. You know, the cocaine works, works via the dopamine system. Um, that's how it kind of gets into that addictive pattern. And the rats that had community and had enrichment and had a rich life pressed the button sometimes. Yeah. But they didn't end up in that kind of spiraling addiction cycle yeah. that the rats in the sparse cages on their own did because they had nothing else to give them that dopamine hit in their life. They had nothing else to give them that sense of sense of value in, and and kind of uh, happiness at its core, really. Mm, yeah. Yeah, and I think the, the, the setting as well, it... The show does a good job of depicting how once you rise high enough. So David, obviously, he does well for himself. He jacks himself up all this chrome. He um, he becomes a, a famous gang leader. Uh, owns a penthouse apartment. But the problem is, the higher you rise, the more you come to the attention of the the corporations, and then they send their fixers after you. Who, as an edge runner, you, you will at some point do a job for one of the big corporations. Um, and once you become, you know too either too big or too useless to one of the corporations then it's time for them to uh send you back to where you belong um and set their uh in the cyberpunk world adam smasher after you uh, in the real world private military companies <laughs> um you know your black waters and such yeah and I th it's that that smushing down of aspiration is a, is a big theme in cyberpunk it's cyberpunk at the genre and and the show well it's it's um it's a kind of combination of uh, that kind of encouragement of aspiration up to a certain point and then a smushing down. Yeah. Which, again, totally unrelatable in the real world. <laughs> yeah. But then... You Pull know, up your bootstraps, but not like that. <laughs> yeah. Pull up, up your bootstraps, but like... Uh, only, only, only a little bit. Yeah. Um, but, but circling back to, you know, what we were talking about with regards to cyberpsychosis mm. and how that relates to this power and powerlessness and inequality... Um, it's the it's the metaphor and the embodiment of all of that systemic and individual and communal angst, and looks looks pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, why wouldn't you want a uh, an arm that shoots a rocket, right? Um, and in fact, the opening uh, the opening scene of the entire series is no spoilers, but. Uh, a pretty cool depiction of of this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the, yeah, the kit that David has, the sand of Easton, is 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 wanted. In fact, it's Maine who is looking for it, and that's how he hooks up with Maine. Um, not that way. Um, <laughs> but uh, the sand of Easton is basically allows you to stop time effectively. It fries or it, it supercharges your nervous system so that you can move so fast that everything else seems to be frozen in time. And the show. I think the show depicts it in a very... The game doesn't do it very well. The show depicts it in a very cool way, right? With the little... With the frame-by-frame frame movements, uh, with the, like, the shadow very, stuff uh, behind. It's very vaporwave. Yeah, yeah, it's very cool, very cool. So, we've done hubris. 
We've done capitalism. <laughs> We've never. We'll never finish capitalism. <laughs> capitalism completed, mate. Is this a segment of the podcast where we ask, um, where is this show like Biker Mice from Mars? <laughs> How can we bring Biker Mice from Mars? I mean, I, you know. Urban decay. Uh, urban decay, capitalism, <laughs> environmental degradation. Bikes. <laughs> uh, uh, robot arms. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. There we go. There we go. It's Biker Mice all the way down. Um. But, you know, we, we've touched a little bit on the aesthetic of how Night City is depicted. Mm. On that note, the violence in Edge Runners yeah. is, on the one hand, hella sick. <laughs> on the other hand, depicted very, very graphically. Yeah. Um, and kind of, in, in some ways, in an exaggerated way, and in some ways, in a semi kind of realistic way. Yeah, I, I've noticed a trend, especially on uh, c- certain streaming platforms where they, they create these animated shows. And I think they sort of think, well, it's animated, so if and we're going, for, it's going to be eighteen rated, and it's an a, and it's animated, so we can just do what we want, really. And I think there's a point where it goes from, you know, realistic consequences of violent actions to into the realms of sort of not not, not what am I thinking? Not glorification, but voyeuristic in a mm-hmm. way of just like you know, like uh, the scene in Gladiator where. Whacking Phoenix is like sticking his tongue out at the people being cut up in the arena, you know. The people like, ah, yeah, oh, yeah. One, one of, this guy's face gets blown out of his skull and his brains are all up the wall. And it's kind of like, yeah, yeah, that would happen. But like, you know, this guy's got cut in half and his innards are spilling everywhere and he's trying to, you know, it's just like, well, yeah, like, uh, I think you sparingly, it's effective. But when it's sort of like, you're just like, oh, okay, there's another one. And it's, oh, yeah, his face has exploded and. All this kind of stuff, and yeah, I feel I feel like there's a real ba- line to be, there's a balance to be struck and a line to be walked between. On the one hand, you have Home Alone, yeah. um, so you have you know violence without consequence. Yeah, um, you know you can set fire to someone's head, you can throw a brick at them from the top of a building, you can drop and drive a nail through their foot, mm. uh, you can make them walk on broken glass, and they'll be fine. Yeah, they'll get up and be like, "Ah, you little scamp." Yeah. Um, but on the other hand, well, and then on the other hand, you have the kind of things like Event Horizon, right? Like yeah. people being sewn together and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, <laughs> and and you know, I would say that depiction of consequenceless violence is something that I really don't like because, although I do quite like Home Alone, the first one, <laughs> um, because it, we can't. It, it, we we I don't like the idea that people are being inured to the idea of of violence and 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 thinking that you can just do it uh without consequence. Yeah. And for the record, both Alex and I, you know, we train martial arts um and so, you know, we're not necessarily kind of against any form of violence per se. It's mm. one, you know, one of our favorite hobbies is violence. Yeah. Um consenting violence. But um I think you know there's Without wanting to again, again, without wanting to be old man yells at cloud, mm. I I feel like we need to show the consequences of violence. Yeah. That said, if you show people hyperviolence all the time, then they start to get inured to that, and they start to get complacent about it. And what's the next? You know, what's so the like, next level up from that? But also, like, you know, once you've seen, you know, twenty piles of guts fall out of a people's bodies, then what's thirty? Um, and so. 
I think people still need to be able to be horrified by gory violence because if it happens in the real world, we should be fucking horrified. Yeah. Um, and so if we start thinking it's normal, like, you know, when when you see footage of, you know, like buildings being blown up, um, for example, in Palestine, like, you know, you'll see a whole building blown up by you know, Israeli airstrike. And because, you know, we've seen so many pictures and videos of buildings getting blown up, whether it's in Palestine, whether it's in Iraq, whether it's in Afghanistan, whether it's in Ukraine, wherever it is. Mm-hmm. So it's just one more building blowing up. Yeah. It's not hundreds of people's lives. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I do agree that that um, there is such a thing as I don't want to say I don't want to say too much graphic violence because that makes me sound like you well, it's know, kind of like ex- it, parental advisory. Yeah, or yeah. <laughs> you don't, you don't want to be also like yes, you know, <laughs> guns are lethal, and there's that aspect of the anim- You know, Japanese animation also has a history of like gratuitous violence as like an artistic thing. Like, and, it, get, and, it, and it can look hella fucking sick. <laughs> yeah, like you, you get your things from like you know everyone's seen the Tarantino movies, which are inspired by Japanese cinema and animation, yeah. where someone's arm comes off and there's a sp- like a fountain of blood spraying everywhere. You know. Um, but there's a difference actually between a fountain of blood and like someone's uh, blasted open skull leaking brain matter. There's two, two yeah. different things. Although to completely not completely, <laughs> completely to, 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 to counterpoint to Tory this, <laughs> how dare you? Um, to, Only in the sense of a U-turn. <laughs> um, to you know, to to both sides this, which ah, is yeah. arguably, to BBC this. <laughs> Um, Night City is a fucked up place. Yes. Um, and everything about it is larger than life. Everything about it is 11 out of 10. Yeah. It's bright colours. It's hyper-capitalism. It's high drama. It's loud noises. Mm. It's flashing lights. It's high emotion. And so it makes sense that as part of that aesthetic milieu, the the violence is hyper. Yeah. So... Having having caveated it all with my kind of societal, oh, you know, what is it doing to people's brains type thing, mm. I do think it fits the the setting and the show. Yeah. Because this is, yeah, a show where everything is dialed up to 11. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just the sound of me clicking all my joints. Uh, oh, that's just nah, the... That'll, uh, be, that'll be fun for me wearing my headphones later. That's just the cyber augmentation yeah. of clicking into place. Christ, I wish I had, like, cyber joints. Oh, God. <laughs> Getting out of bed in the morning at 32 years of age. Uh, yeah, I guess that's that's Edge Runners. Yeah, any kind of lasting... Closing thoughts. Closing thoughts. I mean, uh, well, well, to reiterate, I enjoyed it. I thought it was good. Yeah, um, me too. Uh, I... And maybe I should watch it in, in the English in full, just to see what it's like. But maybe I won't be able to stomach it. I don't know because I'm a horrible, like dub subs over dub but, supremacist. But I guess with this, because it was made in both English and Japanese at the same time, yeah. Then there is no original version. That's true. So, as with all of the subs versus dubs wars, do what the fuck you like. Listener. Yeah, yeah. We're not. Gonna, I'm not going to tell you what enjoy to do. Enjoy art how you like it. I'm not your parents, and you shouldn't listen to your parents anyway. <laughs> Uh, yeah that's it for this episode we'll be back soon with more Uh, but till then stay safe bye
if you gaze too long into bum. the bum, the bum gazes back? I don't know. Okay. You can start editing again now, Alex.